Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, it's true. Uh, all your prayers have been answered, and we finally have once again found our way to the microphones. Uh, so I, I'm your host, Nate Larkin, uh, are the co-host, but the most out there on the West Coast is Aaron Porter. Hey, Aaron. Good morning. And uh, we got a couple of friends. One of them's going to be here for a short time, another for longer, but... Uh, we got a lot of great content, uh, completely unrehearsed. We're, we're just going to pull this out of uh, an orifice somewhere today, but it's going to be fantastic. I can promise that. Uh, I'm, uh, my mind, I'm trying to wrap my head, Aaron, around uh, the visuals. You and I are using the same technology, by the way, that we're using now in the virtual meetings at the Samson Society. We're using Zoom so I can see you, kind of. I see a silhouette of you, and it appears as though you are in a small cell somewhere, or uh, are you in the basement? Are you, you in go. a closet? Are Sorry, you hiding? I, I had to take the backlight out to make it easier for you. Yes, I'm in the shed. This was okay. supposed to be my son's room, but... Uh, he decided to stay and live at home longer than he said. It was supposed to be like six months, so I thought he could stay in the shed for six months. Now it's like a year and six months, so I went ahead and, uh, yeah, when we moved into this house, there was a shed with some mice and snakes in it, and I have now insulated it and uh, put really cheap paneling and sealed everything with duct tape, so it literally looks like a cardboard box. Wonderful. Okay, well, you're smuggling yourself into the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and we might have a guest, uh, a surprise guest later when my friend Chad comes to put the door on because the door's about five feet, two inches to get into the shed. So uh -huh. I had to have someone with actual skills come to chop a door down to make it fit. So, you know, we might, uh, might introduce you to the best male vocalist in San Luis Obispo County. Who oh, wow has the skill to cut doors. Fantastic. So you got kind of a little bit of a hobbit habitat going there. Yeah, you know what? I, yeah. I feel like it's my mother's womb. I feel safe. I feel warm and comfortable. I've always watched <laughs> small areas, and I've been close to my mother. So I feel like there's connections. I don't know. <laughs> hey, we got joining us at least for a while, uh, taking some time out of his very busy schedule and preparing for his upcoming uh, intensive. Mike Cusick is joining us from uh, from Denver. Hey, how are you doing, Michael? Hello, Brother Nate, Brother Joe, Brother Aaron. I'm doing it's, well. Yeah? Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's great to see you. Now, do you, uh, from your vast fund of therapeutic knowledge and wisdom, do you see anything uh, symbolically important about Aaron's choice now to return to his mother's womb? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, first, first of all, before that, though, there's another whole layer of pathology, Aaron. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so for no extra, no extra charge, uh, my dad used to send me out and take me out to the woodshed. And you're telling me that your son, you were going to have him live in the woods. <laughs> and somehow that got flipped on me. So I don't know what went wrong with my parenting. Yeah. We, that is a profound spiritual illustration of substitution or something. <laughs> but yeah, the womb uh, ultimately uh, isn't every one of our addictions and compulsions, regardless of what it is, a 
a uh, compulsive pursuit of wanting to return to that safe place of being perfectly nurtured and nourished and in a container, so to speak, where all of our needs are met and dependence is perfectly safe. So uh, it is a metaphor for the place that we move toward in addiction. Um, and I've, I've been recently studying and the word mercy, we often think about as kind of the withholding of some negative, but the word mercy is in Hebrew, ramena, and it's a, it, it means womb. It's a, from the same root. And so the mercy that we pray for and live in is, is really that container of, of love and nourishment that holds us. And so Wow. Yeah, I'll take the opportunity to share that, even though probably you just wanted a simple answer. Nate, that is Nate. fantastic. Is he really that much smarter than the rest of us? <laughs> he really is. Yeah. Out yeah. Hebrew and uh, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> you know what? I feel like since he's here with all this wisdom, I wish we had like a, a, a listener question or something. Because if, if, if you could pull that off with my womb comment in my cardboard box, what could you do with a listener question? Well, as it happens, we do have a listener question. Uh, this comes from, uh, from Frank. Uh, and he says, uh, have you given any thought to timelines in recovery? More specifically, what should our goals look like from year to year? Obviously, some things will never change in recovery uh, as to our structures and strategies. I guess I was just wondering what you thought about what a guy in year one versus a guy in year five versus a guy in year 10 looks like. What areas should be focused on more and more as time goes by? Should growth be only pursued or expected by a certain time? Uh, I'm not trying to make recovery sound like a corporate strategy, but I honestly have been wondering and thinking about where guys should be throughout the years as they grow. Um, uh, I am going to, that, that's a, I'll tell you what, that's a big question too big really for me to tackle. So I'm going to toss it to Michael. What would you say, man? Well, you, you have a lot to say about this. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you asked me and, and I've been pondering this question for a while on a lot of levels. Um, and I totally honor the question because what I, what I hear underneath Frank's question is not give me the corporate strategy, but really what can we expect about the process of growth and transformation and how can we steward that process well? You know, if you're going to meetings, if you're reading books, if you're in counseling and all that, how do you maximize that? How do, how do you optimize it? And, and, you know, especially when you're five years out and the pressure and the compulsion of acting out, especially in sexual areas, has diminished significantly. And for many people, you know, it's eliminated then the question becomes, well, what is the point of my work? So the first response that I would say to uh, timelines is, first of all, it takes a lifetime. And mm. that, that can be a cliche. You know, in, in AA, I've heard the phrase for years that it takes as long as it takes. But the reason why that's true is that recovery is about the restoration of who we are meant to be. And recovery is like a coin with two sides. Um, first, there's, there's the, um, the cessation of the addictive behavior or the substance. And sometimes that takes a very, very long time. You know, we, we all know guys who have 
done everything and they just keep spinning their wheels and they don't get traction. And sometimes it's hard to, to see exactly why that is. And other guys are able to stop relatively quickly. And folks think, okay, I'm good, or I need to keep doing the work so that I don't go back. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we make in terms of timelines is that we define sobriety and recovery too uh, superficially. Um, sobriety and recovery mm -hmm. are not the same thing, as I know your listeners know. And, and I like to say that sobriety and freedom are not the same thing. And, and so um, sobriety is about getting free from something, and recovery is about moving toward something. And that's something that whether you have uh, uh, an identified addiction or not, every human being is meant to grow and to flourish. And I think the beauty of recovery programs and the recovery movement and the journey that we're called to be on is that we are somehow required, uh, oftentimes through not our own desire, to engage in that journey in a way that other people um, will never. So the question, how long does it take at any given stage, can be asked, what is the it? You know, what is it that your goal is? And I think that that is um, highly individualized, but the endpoint is wholeness. The endpoint is emotional maturity. Uh, the endpoint is that the younger parts of us become integrated into a whole. Uh, the endpoint is that we would become fully who we are and who we're meant to be, that we would indeed become ourselves as opposed to becoming uh, a lesser version of ourselves. Now, specifically, I think the question in terms of timelines, like one year, three years, five years, has a lot to do with several factors. And, and that is, what were the issues that were driving the addiction and compulsion? And, you know, everybody's issues are different, but the addiction field in the last 10 years, and every year we move forward, this becomes more and more true, the addiction field is really understanding that trauma and attachment are the underlying issues that fuel addiction. And that in, in childhood and even in utero, um, that, that the brain is formed in a way where uh, attachments can happen easily because of certain conditions or they can happen um, not at all, or to say it, they would, they would not happen at all. And trauma, we're learning, is not just you know, surviving combat or surviving 9-11 or a sexual assault, but the trauma can be an accumulation of small wounds. Uh, think of an ax at the root of a tree versus a chainsaw versus a pocket knife. And any three of those tools, if you continue with enough perseverance, even a pocket knife can cut down you know, an oak tree that's three feet thick if you hit it, you know, 10,000 times or more. So a lot of the people that I work with, Nate and crew, are uh, men who have been in recovery a long time, and they go, you know, I keep, I keep regressing, I keep relapsing, um, and I can't get the traction I want, and it's because there's issues of trauma or um, the inability to attach, that inability to move from false intimacy into true intimacy. So those issues are part of it. And the, the greater your trauma is, the longer your recovery process will take because trauma oftentimes gives us a sense that I'm not safe in my own skin. I can't be present in my own skin and in my own life. 
Um, and more than that, the attachment issues uh, lay down a foundation usually because a person has not experienced one of three S's uh, for attachment to happen in a healthy way. Dan Siegel, the psychiatrist and uh, patriarch of the interpersonal neurobiology field says that, that every human being needs to be seen. And that is to have a parent do more than just feed and clothe them, but to look into the eyes, to make contact with the face, to see the unique identity in that person. And then as that child grows from infancy forward to see their heart and to see their passions and their uniqueness and to celebrate that, to unveil that glory. And that doesn't happen as much as we think, even in good families and even in Christian homes. The second S is that a child needs to be soothed, that there needs to be a loving parent who's present that when the infant cries, that the parent comes and the child knows they're safe, that when the child is hungry, that the parent feeds them, etc. And then as the child grows, if they fall and skin their knee, instead of hearing, don't cry, we don't cry in this family, or boys don't cry, that the parent comes and holds them and puts their arm around them and tells them it's okay and tends to them. And then what that looks like in junior high is your girlfriend breaks up with you and that you have a dad who can you know, sit with you and give you time and attention and say, oh, son, this is, you know, this is so hard. I'm so sorry. And to hear the feelings. And again, anybody listening is going, man, that didn't happen to me. And it certainly didn't happen to me. That sense of being soothed. And then finally, a sense of safety, uh, that there's not yelling and screaming and unpredictability, that there's a general safety. And when you have a sense of being seen and a sense of uh, being soothed, you learn to soothe yourself and you feel safe and that leads to a secure attachment. And we all know that sexual addiction is about medicating uh, the, the pain of uh, inside of us. And, and um, when you have that attachment, then there's something secure and the self can form in a solid way and we are less compulsive and desperately driven to fill ourselves. All that to say, that when those issues are present, trauma or attachment, um, that is a long journey and a long process. And the person who can um, embrace early on in their recovery that this is more than staying sober, but it's about becoming fully human, it's about becoming fully engaged with my own heart and with others, that is truly something that I've been sober for 23 years. And Nate, you and I have had conversations recently where it's like, man, I just, you know, after conversation, there's something brand new for me to think about yeah. or press into or to sit with. And therefore, <clears throat> I guess my answer to the question would be, look at all the good resources that are out there, like Pat Carnes, 25 Tasks, and the stages of change material, like in a book called Changing for Good by James Prochaska, and take advantage of those stage theories. There's also several really good stage models of change and transformation in the spiritual life. Um, but at the same time, take a deep breath and just say, this is life. And on a very concrete level, you can ask a man, and you can ask yourself, and you can ask God, for me, for example, in 2018, I did this starting at Thanksgiving all the way through New Year's Eve. In 2018, what does growth look like for Michael Cusick? And here's the good news. It looks different than it did last year, not because I'm really a super duper different person, 
but because something internally has shifted in me in an ever so subtle way that I'm then able to receive more and to move forward more. Wow. Uh, boy, what a, what a beautiful answer there, Michael. And it certainly is true for me. I'm sure it is for Joe and Aaron as well. The, the lights keep coming on. Uh, and uh, it's exciting to know that I haven't reached the end of a journey and that there is more healing and more wholeness to come. And, uh, and getting out of my, uh, my own tendency to demand instant transformation and to learn to really lean into and love this progressive change. That's really what uh, this life is all about. Hey, uh, Michael, I'm really looking forward to spending some, uh, some time with you. Uh, two weeks, just two weeks from now. Two weeks from now, you've got uh, the January 2018 edition of the intensive coming up uh, out there in Colorado, and I'm going to be there on staff. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about what you do in that intensive. Oh, sorry. I was, I was hearing the Harley Davidson in the background. I was just getting yeah. fired up about that. So, yeah, yeah uh, Nate, I'm really excited that you're going to be there, too. This will be the first time that you facilitate with us. Um, and it is the Surfing for God weekend intensive. And for anybody who has read Surfing for God, it takes you through, in a very deep and experiential way, the core message of Surfing for God. Uh, about how this restoration transformation process happens. It's from a Thursday night until Sunday at noon, um, and it is uh, January 25th through the 28th, and we have an amazing staff lined up. There's only 25 participants, and we do have a couple of spaces uh, available, um, 25 minutes limited to 15 staff. The format is not a didactic teaching thing where people bring their notebook and sit in rows like a classroom. Uh, the whole weekend, we go from a big circle of men to small groups where there's five uh, participants with a, a licensed counselor or registered counselor leading and a co-leader. Um, and it is uh, particularly powerful around issues of shame and core beliefs and trauma. And many men come out of that weekend feeling like, you know, I just did six months of therapy. And whether you're starting the journey or you've been in recovery for a long time, uh, it really is a chance for breakthrough. All right. And how, uh, how would guys uh, find uh, more information about the weekend? Where would they go to register? So they go to Restoring the Soul, S-O-U-L, RestoringTheSoul.com forward slash weekend. And um, uh, the, you, they can register right online and, and pay. And I want to make a special offer. For anybody who is a friend of Nate Larkin, like being a friend of uh, Bill W. And <laughs> if, if, if you are a friend of Nate Larkin, or if, uh, if you are listening to this podcast, uh, just use the special code uh, SAMSON, and uh, we will give you the early bird price. Uh, I'll tell you right up front, because some people do a, you know, a guffaw. The price is $1,750, um, and the, the early bird price, which has passed over a month ago, is 
$14.99. So anybody from Samson will save $251 that registers now. It is not a retreat. And so people go, you know, what's the deal? Why would it cost that much? It's not a retreat. It's a therapeutic weekend with licensed counselors. And uh, you'll be getting uh, 18 hours of uh, group time and uh, probably numerous one-on-one -on -one conversations and 66 hours uh, overall. So that special offer is for anybody that's listening. Fantastic. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. And I, I uh, look forward to hearing the show with Joe. Okay. All right. Well, we will be talking to Joe when we come back in just a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. back on the pirate monk podcast i gotta say that was quite a gift for frank uh nate <laughs> answer that uh usually we just give you know off the cuff crappy answers to everybody's professional <laughs> 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 in that's right exactly <laughs> well before we get to the the other guy who's smarter than us in the room yeah uh, i was thinking after our our last uh our last show about parenting and uh and I will, I'm totally going to put this on you that you wanted to talk about things that were very fresh and yeah. vulnerable in my life. And I, I realized when we finished that I didn't say one thing that was really important after I talked about mm -hmm. all the things that were important to me in parenting, what I meant to end with was, and it doesn't matter. It didn't make me feel any better when none of it worked out the way I wanted it to, yeah. which I think was a really important part um uh, i was just not in the uh the most lucid spot to elucidate such loose thoughts and things i don't know i ran out of loose but uh <laughs> yeah it, it uh i i didn't want to give the impression that all of that makes everything work it's just the best we can come up with at any given right time. and then we uh muddle through the pain and and you know what i i, I applaud you aaron for being able to give uh, such a coherent and, you know, lucid, uh, able to describe the issues so well when you're right in the middle of them. I, I have a bit of advantage in that my kids are grown and gone, and I'm not deep in the weeds right now. And, uh, brother, you're right in the middle of the whole enterprise, and you wake up every day to the freshness of it, and uh, it's very immediate. Uh, and I appreciate you being vulnerable with me and with our listeners and uh, bringing it real time. That's good stuff, man. Well, I'm going to enjoy this little vacation from life by getting to listen 
and participate in this conversation with Dr. <laughs> Joe Bean because it's been a long time since this man's been on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't you introduce Dr. Joe? Well, the eminent Dr. Joe Bean, <laughs> uh, PhD, sexologist, PhD from the University of Sydney, uh, and a guy with uh, an international reach now, because it turns out wherever there are marriages and wherever people are having sex, uh, complications arise. And uh, it, sex is a subject difficult to talk about, even for sex addicts. That, that, that's strange to me, but it's true for me. I, I get shy and bashful around saying out loud things that I am, that in the past, uh, I've had few reservations about in private. Uh, and Joe is a guy who's just able to just talk about pretty much freaking anything. Wait, I can, can we pause there and maybe Joe yeah. jump in on that? Because I'm surprised by your surprise. You saying you're surprised that sex addicts sometimes have more trouble talking about it. You're talking about folks that have pushed this whole area of life into a secret space and it's been yeah. habituated as a shameful and secret thing. So why wouldn't they be the least likely and the most reticent to talk about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that many people don't talk about it. I also teach human sexuality at a university level. I teach undergrads, I teach juniors and seniors. And uh, it's amazing how they'll sit there and I, I'll ask them a question and they don't speak. Mm -hmm. I asked my friend who teaches human sexuality on the undergrad level at the University of Sydney in Australia. And he said they do the same thing over there. People are very much afraid, it seems, to talk about sex. Now, you get certain people on, on the radio or the television who talk about sex all the time, mm -hmm. but they get paid to do it. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it's still a subject that a lot of people, whether they are Christians or not Christians, are just very much afraid to talk about because somehow when we talk about sex, it becomes very self-revealing, don't you think, Nate? Yeah, I do. It, it tells a lot not only about what I do, but who I am, what I think, what I feel. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so do you think that phenomena is a, a cultural thing based on our time in history, or is it a human nature thing and that peasants in 1342 also did not like talking about sex? Well, even though I may look like I was around in 1342, <laughs> <laughs> I was not there. <laughs> but based on what I see when I travel around the world and speak, I think it's pretty common to our world today. And if it's common to our world today, then I think it's going to go all the way back. You may remember a few years ago, a book came out called Kosher Sex, written by a rabbi over in England. Mm -hmm. And he went through several printings, like in the first month, print, print, print. Yeah. And one of the things he said there was that Christianity's effect was that people quit talking about sex. Uh -huh. That you actually get a more honest answer about sex talking to a rabbi than to a priest or to a minister. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably right. By the second, third century, Christians made it where that... Um, some Christians, some Christian leaders, you could only have sex for procreation. Right. Yeah. And then it evolved into, and if you liked it, when you did that, it was sin. Yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. there were a lot of people lying about how much they disliked sex. Oh, that was horrible. <laughs> just, just hated that. <laughs> Guess we can do it again. Okay, but but people where, can joke about sex. They can joke about sex because it's not self-revealing. Right. But talking about sex, really talking about sex is self-revealing and people tend to shut up. Yeah. yeah. Did, wasn't there some shift though after like the Victorian era where everything gets kind of hidden away in a different level and 
throughout history, we lived in one bedroom huts, rooms, buildings, so that sex, I mean, you knew when your parents were having sex because you're in the same room. It's just a part of life. Well, they knew it was happening and it really did become a part of life. But it was more of a part of procreation of life. It still was not any revelation of this is what I feel, this is who I am, etc. I mean, if you're in a one bedroom hut and your parents are, are having sex over in the corner at 2 a.m. in the morning and it wakes you up, it's still not understanding anything about sex. Mm-hmm. It's understanding about how to make a baby. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how does this tie into the Hebrew uh, idea of the word knowing in the Old Testament being not just informational, but intimate, and Adam knew even they had Cain? I'm quite convinced that uh, the Bible has a lot to say about sex, and particularly in the Old Testament. The Song of Songs uh, is a book about sex. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that it was in the Christian era that we began to change the interpretation, saying it's really going to tell us how much Jesus loves the church. Because, you know, a couple of verses are lifted that refer to how much Jesus loved the church. But it really was a book about sex and about, if you, if you think about the language in it, where they talk about, where he talks about her breast, um, he talks about her neck, her eyes, etc. He, well, there's a passage in the Song of Songs, for example, where he talks about the, uh, the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. Mm-hmm. Now, in the context, he talked about her eyes, her nose, her lips, her neck, her breast, and then that. Mm-hmm. And incense and myrrh are um, fragrances. Yeah. So he was actually making reference to uh, very specific parts of her genitalia and, and, and talking about it in a beautiful way. God puts sex as being this wonderful, awesome, amazing thing where two people can say, I love you. Human beings mess it up. And, and, and uh, you guys know a lot more about addiction than I do. But I think part of what makes it such a temptation is the fact that we don't make it where it is knowing another human being. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of a, a medication. Yeah, sure. Yeah. As opposed to a connection between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, Nate, uh, you can jump in. I'm going to, I'm going to keep jumping in until you go ahead, man. I love it. I love it. I, I am curious, you being a sexologist, I was going to become a sexologist and then I found out it was not a lab science. So I was, out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, I am very curious uh, <laughs> with, with all of this experience and knowledge, how is, what aspects of your personal life has that made life better and sweeter and easier? And where has it made it harder? being a person who has thought about and studied these things so deeply? That's kind of an interesting question. I've never really thought about that. Understand that even though uh, I teach sex, and and that's basically what a sexologist is. I'm not a sex therapist. I'm not a sex counselor. Uh, Like a psychologist studies the psyche and teaches about the psyche, I study sex and I teach about sex. But I'm not a counselor or therapist when it comes to sexuality. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. And, And my day job, if you will, is working with marriages in crisis. And we can talk about that in a minute because two thirds of the couples we work with whose marriages are in crisis are in that situation because of an extramarital affair, either his or hers or both. Mm -hmm. It's it's happening a lot more than people think, I think. So when it comes to sexology in my own life, uh, it makes interesting conversations with my wife and me in the sense that we're very open and transparent about those things. Mm -hmm. It also is very interesting for my daughters, I have three daughters. Our oldest daughter is mentally handicapped, so we didn't really have that conversation with her. 
But the other two daughters grew up where we had very open conversations about these things, where it was not something they were wondering what's out there. Yeah. We talked about it openly and honestly, and not just the mechanics. Right. Like, this is how that fits with that. It was about the connections, the relationships, et cetera. So my youngest daughter actually took one of the university classes I taught on human sexuality. Mm -hmm. And that day I was discussing a specific aspect of the female anatomy one of the other girls in the class looked at her and said, is this like freaking you out? <laughs> <laughs> and she said at our home, this is dinner conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, she was exaggerating. She was exaggerating to some degree, but it's also why they have a very different view of sex because it wasn't some secret forbidden thing. And, and they really understood it's not just about two bodies joining each other. It's about two souls, two hearts, two minds connecting and I think it has been a real advantage to them and to my sons-in-law mm -hmm. that they grew up in a home where it could be discussed from a very Christian perspective, but a very open and honest perspective. Yeah. 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 Um, it's interesting. I do know. So you do the, uh, the marriage helper, uh, your weekends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We use a, a we. We're now doing two of the month right here in Middle Tennessee. Wow. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. And it's usually like this is this is the last stop on the line for marriages. That <laughs> yeah. They've the papers have been drawn up, they haven't yet been signed, but it's all but a foregone conclusion. So one last uh -huh. Hail Mary will go to this weekend. That's pretty much it. Yeah. It's the counselors have already told us there's no hope. And and you actually are describing it accurately. We have many couples walk in the door. The way I got him to come, the way I got her to come is that we have the papers in the car. Yeah. And I promised I would sign them on Monday. Right. If he or she would come to the workshop. Right. And so, yeah, we, uh, we are the last stop. We do two a month. We limit them to 28 couples uh -huh. per workshop and we're filling those out. Wow. 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 And uh, not to give false hope to anybody. But uh, do you see any of those marriages surviving? Well, Dr. Jim Grayson at uh, Augusta State University decided to study over seven couples that had been over the previous seven years. Yeah. And uh, understand now, again, what kind of situation they are when they come. 77% of those couples were still together seven years later. So it's a phenomenal success rate. Yeah. Now, I give all the credit to God. Like one of my psychiatrist friends said, I know this is from God. And I said, really? How? And he said, because, Joe, you're, you're just not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, so does that mean any marriage can be saved if, and then fill in the blank components? Two things. Number one, they each stop doing the things to strong the relationship. Number two, they start doing the things to make the relationship work. And I know that sounds oversimplified and, and a lot of what's been already discussed in this podcast has to do with it. It's about safety. It's about soothing. It's about all those things I've been talking about earlier, being seen, mm -hmm. respect. I mean, all those things are crucial in it. But then again, remember that two out of three couples that walk in that door, at least one of them, if not both have been involved in extramarital uh, relations. Yeah. Sex, yeah. And the majority of them are madly in love with somebody else when they walk in the door, quote, end quote. Yeah. So what are some common threads you've seen between men who are having affairs and women? I assume there are some basic differences, but what, what are some things you've learned about this? Well, while there are some basic differences, um, forgive me for being a little didactic here. If we, if we go back to what's already been talked about in the podcast, which was brilliant, by mm -hmm. the way. Oh, and you'd realize you have to 
come down and teach my class. <laughs> okay, all right. I, 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 We're swapping out. You don't understand. <laughs> all that. right, I'll do it. I'll do it. My class loves it when Nate comes. He fascinates me. <laughs> I mean, I'm dead serious. They just, they're in thrall when he walks on the door. That's right. A flesh and blood pervert. Today. <laughs> dance pervert monkey, dance. <laughs> they they love the honesty. Okay. They love the honesty. Okay. But if you go back to what's already been talked about, just kind of look at it like this way. Um, think about what James uh, you read in James chapter one, we're not tempted by God, but drawn over our own lusts and enticed. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Most of us have some kind of vulnerability or susceptibility mm-hmm. and it could be the trauma mm-hmm. and it definitely could come from childhood. I'll give you a quick example. A friend of mine, uh, by the time he was 18, his mother had been married 12 times. Oh, 12. Okay. okay. And, and, and it would be like, when this one's gone, you're the man of the house. Now she's got another one. You're a little boy. Yeah. Now he's gone. Screws up a kid's head. Oh, sure. Okay. Talking about needing to be seen. Oh, man. Uh, he felt invisible whenever the next guy came in the door. So right. he didn't feel seen at all. Soothed. I mean, everything that's been talked about so far on yeah, this yeah. podcast, he didn't have any of that. Right. Right. All right. Okay. He became a minister. He's a brilliant man. He's a very different man. Uh, when they built their new building, he was the executive pastor, fast, rapidly growing church, thousands of people. He was the one that decided all the offices would be glass. So you can see what's on the computer screens of all the ministers. Mm-hmm. There you in go. other words, we're not going to have any problems. Yeah. But he never really understood the vulnerability he had of needing feminine approval. Uh-huh. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. That pain, that hurt. Particularly, I need to be seen by a woman. Yeah. Oh, all right. Wow. So let's say that's vulnerability. So the next thing then becomes um, possibility. Now, I... I have been to AA. I am a, a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and that a lot of that comes from my childhood. But if I'm living in Saudi Arabia and can't get my hands on alcohol, then the possibility may not exist. Mm-hmm. Well, in America, as you know, possibility for everything. Yes. Everything exists. Okay? Right. Yeah. So he starts hanging out with the worship team. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, except there's a woman in the worship team with a corresponding weakness. Yeah. She needs his approval. He needs her approval. Now we got a possibility, but we can't keep those from happening. The next thing, then that's what I call a probability, which is when they started standing out in the parking lot talking for an hour after the, the uh, rehearsals for the choir. I mean, the choir was a praise team. Yeah. They sit outside and just visit. And it's like, hey, we're good people. We're open. We're honest. We would never do anything wrong, but they've moved from possibility into probability. Yeah, yeah. And then when somebody finally sees that and says, that doesn't look good, you shouldn't be doing that. And now they start sneaking yeah. to meet each other. Yeah. Now we're in high probability, which leads to reality, which leads to consequence. And so we can kind of trace it out. Now, whether it's a male or a female, it almost always follows that pattern. Where's your, your vulnerability? Right. Yeah. Okay. Then if some kind of a possibility starts existing and then a probability because, and you guys are experts on this. I'm not because it starts healing, or at least you think it's healing that hurt, that yeah. hole in your heart. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and this person becomes the be all end all. And then we hear things like, oh, like a lady in a workshop not long ago said, I've quit going to church because those people are also judgmental. I said, really, what, do you, what does that mean? Well, they keep telling me that I should not be divorcing my husband to marry this guy. And they keep telling him he shouldn't divorce his wife to marry me, that God, intended for us to stay married for a lifetime. And so we can't go to a judgmental church like that. (laughs) And then she said, but I'm closer to Jesus than I've ever been in my life. Yeah. yeah. And I said, so what does Jesus say about that? Yeah. Oh, Jesus sent him to me. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 
it's very difficult to convict people of sin when they partner God in it. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's through the same process. And it, just like with every addiction, that, that self delusion, all those things that happen add to it in the marriage situation that as they go into that, they typically start vilifying the spouse. Right. Like he or she, let me point out every bad thing about him or her. And they start rewriting history, mm-hmm. meaning they don't remember the good things about that spouse, just the bad things about that spouse. Yeah. Um, and, and when they compare the two of them, the new person wins in every shape, fashion or form. Um, there's actually a word for this, Nate, it's called limerence, L-I-M-E-R-E-N-C-E. And uh, I could go into great, great detail about that. Actually writing a book about the three stages of limerence right now. Are you really? Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Um, writing and meaning two words a day when I got a chance. <laughs> you write like I write. <laughs> I was going to say, are you guys in a competition here? Or <laughs> I've been working on this since 1342. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's the same situation we see with the sexual addictions that you guys talk about. But typically in my world, it's with another, it's not just with the sex, it's with another person. Right. And, and it typically doesn't start off sexual. Yeah. It so, becomes sexual in the process. So I've, you can, you can help me out. Cause I have found when I am uh, counseling someone who has that relationship and they are so deeply tied to it because it's so deeply meeting that felt mm-hmm. need. Right. Uh, it's the hardest thing in the world to get them to make the choice to stop. Cause like you said, they have to stop doing the thing that's hurting their relationship and start doing things that's going to help. Uh, and man, it's like there's just barbs in their soul that they can't pull out. So how do you help people make that really hard choice? Yeah. Well, as you definitely understand, it will not be accomplished by logic. Right. That's true because the emotions are so overpowering logic won't do it. We actually have a process that we can do in three days when we have a bunch of couples in a room that's extremely difficult to do one-on-one. Uh, I don't want to explain too much about it. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm trying to keep it secret. I teach counselors about it all the time. It's just that um, it, too much to get into right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's a process that we do that, that if anything works, it does, uh-huh. but you're not going to reason them out of it. Right. And when I'm, and if you're talking to somebody one-on-one, like you're talking about Aaron, typically they keep wanting to move from one subject to the other, like how crazy I am about her or him mm-hmm. and how much I need to get out of this terrible marriage. Mm-hmm. And they, and it's hard to pin them down because they're popping between the two. Mm-hmm. And typically what I will tell them if I'm talking about them one-on-one is, okay, you can only work on one at a time. Mm-hmm. So, we, we can talk about your marriage later, but mm-hmm. right now, this is the issue. This is the pressing thing. We need to deal with this and kind of get the marriage off the table to begin with and help them deal with this right here. Are you familiar with that, uh, uh, the book that Susie Welch wrote called 10, 10, 10? No. Fascinating book. Picked it up in a bookstore years ago. The whole thing's explained on the back cover, so you don't have to buy the book. Oh, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> That's my kind of book. <laughs> so when you write, when you get this book, don't put it all on the back cover. Okay, okay, so okay, okay. Basically, she said, every decision in life, you should think, how am I going to feel about this in 10 days, 10 months, and 10 years? Oh, yeah. It's a brilliant little system. It's just so simple. Yeah. And so we start thinking about helping them think about it, not just how you're going to feel in 10 days, but 10 months and 10 years. Now, you say, well, that's working with logic. 
actually still working with emotions because we help them start thinking about emotionally where they're going to be and yeah. the people they care about 10 months, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and if you can get people thinking down the road. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I, hey, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, a lot of the guys in Samson, certainly a lot of guys in Samson have been, uh, you know, uh, physically unfaithful to a, a spouse uh, like I was, but there's no small percentage of our guys who never crossed that line. And I didn't cross it for years. Mm -hmm. In fact, I regarded pornography as protection against infidelity. Uh, so I'm not being unfaithful to my wife. And, uh, because I'm only doing this in my imagination with a phantom, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not, I'm saving the marriage. I'm not damaging the marriage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, these guys um, experienced the same just mystification that I did when when I discovered that my wife was as found that as hurtful mm -hmm. as physical infidelity. Mm -hmm. And there are guys who will protest their innocence, who will uh, withhold this kind of comfort from their wives and really feel terribly judged and persecuted. And their defense is it was only porn. Uh, help us understand that. Okay. If you read the sexological research about that, it's kind of interesting. Uh, women in America, for example, if they're in a short-term relationship, tend not to care. Mm -hmm. Like if you're watching porn, you go to the strip clubs, I don't care if they're in a short-term relationship. Yeah. But in longer-term relationships where like I'm supposed to be the person. Yeah. It actually does become equated with infidelity. Uh -huh. You have broken the vow. You have violated, you have committed adultery in that you have violated our marriage vows. And they feel very much offended. A couple of other things happen, and that's this. Uh, every semester, by the way, um, 90 percent, 75 to 90, based on which semester is, uh, percent of my class is female. Okay. And I teach human sexuality right, at the university right. level. My class fills up really fast and guys procrastinate. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so let's say I've got 50 women out there in my class, 21, 22 year old juniors and seniors. Right. And I'll ask how many of you ever compare yourself to another woman and come out <laughs> second best? Oh, what percentage of hands do you think? Oh man, it's gotta be hundred percent. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And these girls are all beautiful, physically, mentally, spiritually, every other way. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. Right. And so I start pointing out to guys, even the most beautiful of women has to be constantly reminded that she's pretty because they they're taught in our culture not to believe it. Now, they're going to start comparing themselves to those women. Uh -huh. You're looking at the porn saying, I've not done anything. I've not been unfaithful to you, but you must understand in their minds, you have chosen that woman over her. Yes. She won't match up to her. Right. If she actually sees your porn, she's going to think she's not as pretty. Probably. Right. Yeah. Even if she doesn't see it, she's going to think I'm not as uh, skilled. Right. I'm not as good. And so inevitably the females are going to wind up evaluating themselves and characterize that and saying, I've been rejected because there's something wrong with me, me yeah. which really, really destroys them. All right, let's take it from the guy side. Oh, by the way, we're getting a lot more women addicted to porn. Oh, yeah. ton of women. ton of women. All right. And then let's look at the guys. And, 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 and some couples, actually, Nate, will say to me, well, but we use it together. So yeah, that's okay, right? Yeah. Okay. Here's the problem. I'm one day older than my wife. One day. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool about that because when I get a birthday present, I know I've got 24 hours. 
we met when we were 18. We're no longer 18. Yeah. Neither one of us looks like we did when we were 18. Mm-hmm. All right. And so here's another thing I talk about to the guys, which is, you know, uh, the average porn star is going to be what, like two, three years in the business before she's out. Right. Oh yeah. They've burned out fast. Mm-hmm. And, and the average age of retirement I read many years ago, I think at that point was 27. Yeah. And I wouldn't doubt that that's still somewhere close. Yeah. Yeah. If not younger. Okay. If not, yeah, if not younger, exactly. And, and so my wife, I'm in my sixties. So is my wife. I'm one day older than she is. So what I try to explain to guys is not only the, the effect it has on her, but I'm using that young hard body to get turned on. Yes. And so if you could put a 60 year old woman, most six year old women yeah. next to a 25 year old woman, and you look at their naked breasts and say, which is a better set of breasts from a purely physical standpoint. Yeah, sure. It should sure. be the 25 year old. Yeah. Right. But which is the really better set of breasts? These are the breasts that suck on my children. Right. These are the breasts that held me close when I was scared and it'd be soothed and seen and safe yes. and those kinds of things. And so what happens is they wind up losing the ability to be eroticized by their spouse. Yes. And they have to have this visual, yeah. if yeah. not looking at it in yeah. the brain after they got it in there, yeah. because I can't be turned on by her anymore. So what they're sacrificing is, is their future. Yes. Where that you're not going to have this wonderful, fulfilling sex life with each other down the line. <laughs> no. Snarsh wrote a book uh, called A Passion of Marriage. Uh-huh. And with a name like Snarsh, you've got to be good. Right? Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Where he pointed out that the best sex should happen in your 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, for your younger guys, <laughs> yeah, definitely 50s <laughs> and 60s. But it's because then it's not so much about just the physical. Right. It's about the emotional, spiritual, mental connection. Yeah. And, and, and I try to help these guys understand that's what you're destroying. Yeah. And you're never going to have that with those women. Right. Yeah. Not going to happen. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, I'm saying I'm being redundant to things you've taught a thousand times. No, no, no. You know, and it amazed me is how much more beautiful my wife became when I got in recovery. Mm-hmm. Because I had allowed pornographers to blind me to the beauty of my wife. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't able to recognize her beauty and reflect it back to her and affirm it, she lost confidence in her own beauty. Mm. And one of the great gifts of recovery for my wife is that I have been able to see her beauty again. And now she's able to believe it more than she was during That's those years awesome. when she was absolutely invisible. She was made invisible by pornography. Uh, yeah. Well, I divorced my wife. Oh, 35 years ago now for another woman. Uh-huh. I divorced my wife because I was going to be with the other one. I was madly in love with the other woman, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't work out like it almost never does. And three years later, my wife and I remarried. Mm-hmm. Wow. But what you were just saying, I was going through a drive through McDonald's the other day because I was in a hurry. Looked up and my wife was right behind me in the drive through uh-huh. First thing I thought was, who'd ever think I'd be in love with a grandmother? <laughs> but I love that woman. Yeah. That beautiful woman in the truck behind me. So I'm with you. I understand yeah. exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. I wish uh, it was probably 20 years or more ago. I remember seeing an Oprah Winfrey show back in the old day when she was still like before or after Phil Donahue. Okay. But I, I still remember I was, I was pretty young and it had a bunch of women who had been married three or four or five times each. And I don't remember a lot about the show except for one woman who said it wasn't until my fourth or fifth marriage that I realized all of these guys were awful in the same way. And so maybe they weren't the ones that were awful. 
And that's mm-hmm. when I realized that I had left my real first love. And it was that guy. Wow. At the beginning. And she articulated it so well, but I was probably in my late teens, early 20s when I saw that. Mm. That has always just stuck with me, especially as I've experienced so many marriages where people get into their second and third marriages and find out, geez, it's the same set of problems as the last guy. Yeah. And man, when you, I mean, what a, what a great story of redemption you have that you got a second chance at your first uh, love. Good for God. But, but two quick things to say, what, what you just reminded me of talking about being articulate lady in Texas. And I wish I could quote it exactly, but basically what she was saying was, I wish I could have surgery from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. So maybe my husband would want to look at me instead of those women on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now she said it much more articulately than that. Yeah. But, and the second thing is this, there's actually a debate in the sexological world uh, that marriage is pretty well over because you take all the marriage problems that exist now mm-hmm. and add to it, that, that the younger generations are coming up, that their sex education, the the, met, the primary method of sex education in the world today is internet pornography. Right. And so what they're saying is, and this is worldwide, mm-hmm. right? what they're saying is take all the problems with marriage today, and now you're educating a group of people in a way sexually where they will never be satisfied with one right. sex partner. Right, right. And so they're debating and saying, marriage is over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the, the, here's the scary part about it, Nate. When I'm there, I don't know how to answer it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm thinking if it keeps going this way, you may be right. We are conditioning ourselves to novelty. And it does not matter how beautiful that woman is. She is only one woman. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if I have been conditioned by tube pornography and I've been watching two-minute clips uh, for hours a day for for years – uh, the impulse there just to click to the next one sure. is, is automatic. And, and, and from behavioral science, it's, it's rewarding. Yeah. And so when I talk to teenage boys now, and not many churches invite me to speak to teenage boys anymore, I guess because I've gotten great in that. Uh, but that but when, I do, when I do, <laughs> they'll say things to me like, well, it's not hurting anybody. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's hurting your future. Yeah. Yeah. Based yeah. on what you were just saying. Yeah. Now you still get invited to do that though, right? Speak to the groups like this. Yeah, yeah, I do some. Yeah, I do. And only because this is becoming more and more a pressing issue. It's finally starting to dawn uh on the uh church that it's not that the tsunami is coming, it's that it it's hit. Right. Uh and we're trying to pick up the pieces and see what we can do from here. Yeah. Uh, I read somewhere, I wish I could quote this exactly, that you would never have a set of volumes of, of, of books on your shelf for your kids to look at that have sadomasochism and bestiality and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then you hand them a smartphone that connects to every bit of that. Right. Yeah. You would never have it on your shelf, but you put it in their hands. Yeah. 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 So I was a, I was a youth pastor at the pretty early days of fast internet and uh, instant messenger chatting kinds of things. Uh-huh. And uh, I've mentioned before on the show, I used to uh, subscribe to Rolling Stones and pull out clips and articles that were relevant to talking with the the youth. And I remember when the movie American Pie came out, the first mm-hmm. American Pie movie, and the Rolling Stones review said, this is a comedy for a new generation where the girls are even lustier than the guys. Mm-hmm. And that just stuck with me. And I watched that happen in the youth. And then I watched as they were chatting with each other, not face to face, they were learning 
how to say things, crude things, over overly sexualized things they never would do face to face, but the girls got used to hearing it and the guys got used to saying it. And so it started mm -hmm. creeping into actual conversations. Right. And now when you're talking about the increasing uh, number of women who are looking at pornography, I think Germany went through this about 20 years ago where they seemed ahead of the curve on that there were even some neurological changes with women's brains in response to pornography that was much more like guys response visually to pornography. So what's happening to explain this, what's happening with the women beyond just the trajectory that I've watched over the last 20 years is, is there a, a deeper fundamental change going on in women and how does that affect oh, yeah. the future of men? Without a doubt there is. And the college students, the female college students that tell me that, that they are, struggling with porn, the female colleagues who knows to tell me that the majority of it is girl on girl porn. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's actually a thing now called lug L U G lesbian until graduation, meaning I have sexual needs I need to fulfill, but I don't have time for a boyfriend because I need to make good grades. Um, it, it's affecting women, not only in that sex is becoming less about the connection between two people mm -hmm. and more about the orgasm, even for the females. Yeah. And there's still a part of them though, because women tend to be more relational than men that I think that's why it's attracting them toward a girl on girl porn because they still tend to be more relational. Yeah. Even though orgasms are replacing relationships, it's, there's something here. Two girls might still connect to each other. All right. We you are changing. Got, you got to sex ecologicalize me on this. Cause uh, that that's kind of mind blowing to me because I can't imagine guys going, yeah, I'm not really gay, but I'm going to go just fool around with that guy over there. Like that, that would be unusual. I would think maybe it's changed. You're the college teacher. So how is it that women seem more okay with that? That's, that's very strange to me. Okay. Well, well think of it, not on the scale of, heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual. Think of it more of a sliding scale. Let's say completely heterosexual, mostly heterosexual, bisexual, mostly homosexual, uh, homo completely homosexual. And, and so there's more of a sliding scale there. And we're living in a culture where it's encouraged both males and females to experiment, mm. to try it. Yeah. Um, even back in the 1950s, it would not be unusual for a male to have an encounter with another male, but typically it was curiosity and they were little. Yeah. Okay. Um, women are more emotional typically than men. And I know that sounds sexist, but they tend to be more relational. And um, well, well, think about it this way. If, if you see two women kiss on a TV show, you typically don't react nearly as strongly if you see two men kiss. Mm -hmm. Right. It still has to be that, that people tend to accept that women uh, can be emotionally connected to another woman. Mm -hmm. And if that has a sexual dimension, it's become much more acceptable in our culture. Okay. Uh, are there men who are more likely to do that? And the answer is no. And even, even the people who are mostly are completely uh, homosexual, there is a difference in females and males. Um, males tend, for example, not to be monogamous. Mm -hmm. Female homosexuals tend to be monogamous. Mm -hmm. It still tends to be more about the relationship. That's interesting. And yeah, when you're saying that, I immediately think when women go on trips together, they often have no problem sharing beds with each other. Exactly. Right. Guys, yeah. Guys will go to the greatest lengths to make sure they have. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'll just sleep on the floor. That's exactly, right. exactly. <laughs> sleep. Who needs sleep? <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> you can sit up all night. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, man, uh, the time has flown. We're going to have to do this again. And uh, oh no, you owe me for this one first. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're not, yeah, we're we're not going to let as much time go by before you have it back on the podcast. As we well, I think time. extremely highly of you, and I totally appreciate how open and honest and transparent you are, man. That's that's changing lives. May more men and women rise up and do the same. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. All right, well, uh, I'm afraid we've about hit the end of our time. Uh, I really hate to end the conversation just because it's so fruitful, but we will do it again, will we not? In the meantime, uh, if you would like to uh, have me or Aaron pose a question or a comment. I thought you were going to say pose naked. You need to have (laughs) (laughs) I'm not signing up. (laughs) Well, if I post naked on the internet, that might actually end. (laughs) (laughs) This is our service. Uh, Yeah, the Samson calendar. We need to do one, yeah. no, look, do it, do what Frank did. Uh, shoot us, shoot us a question or a comment. And if, if, if we can't come up with a sensible answer that we're comfortable with, well, we'll refer it to one of our many knowledgeable and talented friends. May I give yeah. a website for if people? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. What am I thinking? If yeah. you're needing any kind of marriage help. Yeah. Uh, marriage helper. That's marriage help. E-R marriage helper.com. And if you go there, you can find all kinds of articles, and podcasts, and et cetera. And we'd like to help if we can. Okay, yeah. And you're running those now twice a month. We have two of the workshops a month. That's oh, right. that's fantastic. Okay. And if you're not in Middle Tennessee, it's a great excuse to come. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Samson guy and you are coming to a Marriage Helper Weekend, look, uh, shoot me a note. Let me know you're coming. And, and if you can find time before or after, if we can meet for coffee, I'd love to do it. All right. Well, uh, the email address that you can reach us at is piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, until then, uh, I, we'll, see you, we'll see you next week. Until then, I'm Nate. Aaron. And uh, we are your pals here with Dr. Joe Beam on the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs> Arg. <laughs> <laughs>